work here in Zionsville and across, of course, uh, the world. And uh, I wanted to say a couple of things before I kind of talk about a little bit about the scripture passage. First, um, good morning. I didn't say good morning to you. Good morning. Um, I want to say a reminder. I mentioned this last week, but um, this is very important. This is pivotal kingdom kind of stuff here. Uh, softball today at 2.30. And uh, so if you are a man or a woman and you are interested in softball, please come talk to me. Um, this is going to be big league stuff. Um, I don't think we have shirts, but if you want to wear red, I'm just kind of making this up as we go. Let's be red because it's the color of the St. Louis Cardinals who are by far the best. Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about just briefly is I want to talk a little bit about the all-church retreat. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but I, I know it's a little ways off. It's August 28th through 30th, but we also know that people have to plan. And so we want to kind of be able to start thinking about this and planning for these things uh, now. And so uh, as I was thinking about the importance of the all-church retreat or why we, you know, why, why we should have it, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, the summer obviously coming and oftentimes what families do on summer is they go on they go on vacation. That's exactly right. And so, uh, and oftentimes as I look back at my own childhood, um, while I have lots of memories in my family, it is frequently, it is those memories when we were on vacation together, the kinds of things that happened, the, the good things, the bad things, the interesting things that happened. And, and so I was thinking, you know, in, in some ways as a church family, that's what this is going to be for us. This is going to be kind of a, a vacation, if you will, an opportunity to, uh, to get away uh, in a place that's very different than Zionsville, to go down to Brown County. Um, there's going to be a lot of different things going on, um, uh, whether you are two years old or whether you are 92 years old. Um, there's going to be some mission things that we can do. There are going to be games to play. Um, Todd Bolsinger, who's a, um, uh, a vice president at Fuller Seminary out in California, a guy I know uh, personally, um, he's going to be here um, speaking, and he's a great guy and is a great teacher, and so I think that that will be great. Um, and it'll be just an opportunity. There's going to be free time on Saturday afternoon, especially to get away. Um, we'll have talks Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and then Sunday we'll have worship and then a big picnic afterwards. So there's going to be a good food. Um, and it's just a great opportunity to kind of get away from here for a little while, just for, you know, two days, basically two and a half days, something like that. If you can't make it on Friday, please sign up, come down on Saturday. We'd love to have you come down on Saturday. Um, and just be a part of it. I think it's important for churches as a whole, church families at times, just to simply kind of get away and kind of see each other in a different light. It's a great opportunity to meet some folks you may not always meet. Maybe you all can meet folks at the 1030 from the 1030 service and vice versa. Um, and so I would, um, I would encourage you to, to really seriously consider that. If uh, We have already kind of subsidized some of it, but if money is an issue for you, then please let us know, and we will do uh, whatever we have to do uh, in order to make sure that you can uh, come and be a part of this. So I just kind of wanted to say a couple things about that before we dive in uh, to the passage this morning. And our passage um, this week or this month, excuse me, we've been kind of looking at Ephesians for the church. And so this is the, uh, this is the last passage in the fourth chapter. It comes to us from the 25th verse through the 32nd verse. And so I invite you to hear these words from Paul to the people of Ephesus. Paul writes, so then putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. 
Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity on this uh, somewhat rainy morning to gather together in order to be with one another, in order to learn from you, in order to practice what it means for us to be your people and to help to bring this kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So I, my guess is, I've mentioned this to you before, that I'm not a big fan of doing yard work at all. And uh, Scott mentioned last week that his hands, and he also uh, politely uh, let you know my hands, uh, are also very soft. Um, and, and what you don't realize, is it actually takes a lot of work to have soft hands. Um, because you have to say no to a rake or to a shovel, even if you want to, because you're wanting to preserve the softness of one's hands. And so uh, it's a very delicate matter. Uh, but last Monday, I did something fairly atypical, which is that I um, was out working in the yard. And so I was, uh, I was out there. We were trying to get a little grass going on. I was doing a little bit of, of raking. Uh, uh, Megan was even uh, uh, texting her brother about how the world must be coming to an end because uh, her husband, uh, aka me, was uh, cleaning out the gutters. So it was just that kind of memorial day for me. And so uh, as, we were, as a part of that, I realized that we needed a sprinkler. Uh, Now, we have never uh, bought a sprinkler before, Um, so, you know, we've not even been married nine years yet, so there's no reason to do any of these things too quickly, and so, uh, but but I, not knowing, you know, what kind of sprinkler she wanted, I had to ask, and of course, I didn't know what these things were named, so I just said, do you want the kind of sprinkler that's like, or the one that goes, right? I was kind of disappointed because she wanted the, which was always the one we had growing up, but I was always mesmerized by the, right? So my point in bringing that up this morning is the simple fact that as good kind of a, a Bible readers, scripture uh, folks, if we really want to get to the root of a passage, if we, if we really want to understand scripture in the best way possible, it is good for us to be, I looked this up, I think it's called a rotor sprinkler. It's the one. And what I mean by that is it's important for us on that part to look at the details of the passage, to look at each verse, to look at each line, because oftentimes there's good meat there. But it's also important for us, once we have done that, to kind of go back to the part where you have the larger swath to say, what's the theme here? So whether it's a passage or a chapter or a book of the Bible or even the Bible in and of itself, the whole Bible, it's always important to look at both the details and then to kind of go back and to say, what's the overall theme? What's what's something that's just kind of being interwoven throughout this passage? And that's what I want us to do kind of briefly here this morning. It's important to start off with, we won't look at every detail, but look at some of the details. 
details. And one of the important things it seems to me that Paul begins is by talking about the fact that we are members of one another. Now, this harkens back, if you were here three weeks ago, um, to, to when Paul was talking about the fact that we are one body. And I brought up kind of uh, uh, the Monty Python's Holy Grail, and you may recall that. And I talked about how, how silly it must look to other people when we keep telling uh, the world that we are one body, and yet we keep kind of fighting and separating uh, again and again and again, that that probably looks pretty silly, that it looks like we're saying one thing, we are one, we are members of one another, and yet we we pretty easily kind of separate from one another when things aren't going our way or when we don't agree with somebody else. And, and it's interesting here to think about this, this notion of being members of one another and how quickly we can forget that. I, I probably have mentioned this before. Megan and I, when we first got married, um, uh, whenever we would have an argument, we had arguments from time to time, uh, whenever we had an argument, uh, oftentimes afterwards, after the argument was over, she would say something like, you know, it was kind of weird, right? In the middle of that argument, you know, it seemed like you forgot that we were on the same team, right? In other words, you forgot that we were members of one another. And of course, as I thought about it, she was absolutely right. Because in order to really have a good argument, and in order to win the argument, you have to separate yourself a little bit, right? That was always the kind of mentality I had. What I wanted to do was win this argument, right? And so I would separate mentally myself to make sure. But not surprisingly then, the arguments that we had, especially from my part, were not all that glorifying to Christ. And they did a horrible job of building us up. All they did was end up tearing us down. And so one of the things it seems to me that we have to kind of be cognizant of, whether it's your your, your biological family or your church family, is whenever you're in the midst of a difficult conversation, is perhaps in the most heated of times to ask yourselves, do I really, am I really remembering that I am a member of one body with this person? And that every time I tear this person down, I am tearing myself down. And every time I encourage this person, I am encouraging myself as well, that we are members of one body. Which of course then feeds well into what Paul says next, which is about anger. Paul talks about the fact, he says, this is great advice, do not let the sun set on your anger. Now that's great practical advice again for a couple of reasons. One, it reveals the reality that there are going to be times when we are angry at one another. Sometimes I feel like we have this great pressure to make sure or to try to act as if we we have no anger, that everything is great, everything is perfect, and we kind of keep building up all this pressure. And so one of the things that's important to know is that there are going to be times, it's inevitable as a family or even a church family, that there will be anger at times. There's nothing gained by suppressing anger, but neither is there something gained by beginning to obsess and fixate on your anger, right? Paul gives this great description. He says that if you do that, basically, in the NRSV, it says you are giving space in your life for the devil, or in the NIV, it says you are giving the devil a foothold. I find that to be a pretty fascinating and pretty true kind of uh, description of it. If we begin to obsess on our anger, it will take over our lives. It seems to me that anger is ravenous. 
And if we can't admit to the times when we are angry and then deal with it in a healthy way and then forgive and move forward, it will eat us alive. I was thinking about that this week, and I saw this, uh, this quote by uh, Presbyterian pastor Frederick Beekner, and I want to read it to you. It says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. And the skeleton at the feast is you. It's a pretty powerful statement. But anyone who has known and have dealt with anger themselves or know others who have dealt with it, while you may think that you are affecting the other person, in reality, what you are wolfing down is yourself. It's another way, of course, of what Paul says. Do not let... The sun go down on your anger or the devil will get a foothold that he will not let go of and you will be devoured. So forgetting that we are members of one another, allowing ourselves to obsess over anger, both of those things end up tearing down community. But Paul also points out something that is incredibly helpful, it seems to me, for building up community. And he says this kind of fascinating things about how we need to have words or about how our words can give grace to one another. And I was thinking about this earlier in the chapter, of course. We said that, you know, we talked about, Paul talks about building up in the stature, right? And we, we said we want to try to stand up to the, 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 the floating head, I said, of Jesus, right? If Jesus is the head of the church, and how can we stand up? And one of the greatest ways for us to be built up is to offer words of grace to one another. We talked about this on Wednesday at the staff meeting, and someone said, you know, usually in Scripture when we talk about grace, it's about the grace that God has for us. But it's also, here's one of the few opportunities where we can offer grace to one another. And one of the things that I wrestle with, I get kind of frustrated with myself, actually, if I can be honest, is that I have been the recipient of much grace. I have been the recipient of, of words that have been encouraging to me in difficult times or even in good times. And I have, I have felt the presence of that encouragement, of those words of grace. And yet I wrestle in my own life, in my family, at the church, or with whomever, with actually offering those words of grace to others. Even though I have been the great recipient, I sometimes find it difficult to offer words of grace to others, right? Including my children, right? It's easy for us to see the things that they are not doing well oftentimes, but how can we offer words of grace to them or to my wife or to the staff here and other folks, anybody else that I might meet throughout the day? And as I was thinking about that, I realized that if there's a mini kind of homework assignment for you this week, here's what it would be. It would be for you to think of seven people This week, one each day to whom you can offer a word of grace. Maybe it's someone at your home one day and then at work the next day and someone in your church family the next day and then, and then somebody else that you may just randomly meet another day. But think through each morning as you wake up, right? That's one of the great things about this. One commentator says that you can offer grace each and every day to somebody. What might that look like? The problem is criticism comes naturally. 
right? I mean, criticism, you don't have to remind me to be critical, right? I will wake up ready for that. But we do have to wake up usually with some intentional sense if we want to offer words of grace to others. And so how might we do that this week? So we, there are other details, of course, of this passage that we could go over about, about working, uh, uh, lots of other things, some of which we'll talk about in our home groups if you're a part of a home group this week. But as I was thinking about the, the kind of the part, right, of the sprinkler, of the rotor sprinkler, I was remembering, of course, the other parts that we've talked about in this last few weeks. Uh, we talked about speaking the truth in love. We talked to, uh, we, uh, Scott talked a little bit about a callous, uh, not having a callous heart, being tender towards other, about not having lust for more all the time, about thinking about others, about being patient and, and gentle and, and humble, about being tender-hearted, about forgiving And the question I had, of course, is what's a theme then about all of this? If there was one kind of overall theme then to this chapter, what would it be? And and it doesn't take a biblical scholar to see that one of the themes, perhaps the main theme in this chapter, is about the importance of community. Now, what's important for us to see about that is the fact that Paul is not writing about this because he thinks a community is nice or that it is cute or that most people would rather be a part of a community where everyone's getting along. It really has probably very little to do with that, though all of those things are important. But really what Paul is looking at, it seems to me, is a much deeper level of the importance of community, that it actually gets down to the root, not just of who we are supposed to be, but of who the triune God is. And if perhaps we began to understand that more richly, we would both understand the importance of community more and it might come more easily for us. So let me explain what I mean. Today in the church liturgical calendar, does anybody know what today is? Good, yeah, all right. Um, Today is Trinity Sunday. How many of you even knew there was a Trinity Sunday? Right, yeah, not a lot of us, okay? But in the church universal, this is Trinity Sunday, right? If your kids are here, there's no presence involved in this day, so don't get excited, okay? Trinity Sunday, and and the Trinity is not something that we talk about a whole lot, and and a part of that is because it's mysterious, and it's just kind of hard to talk about, right? And maybe in Sunday school, you remember they might use something like water and steam and ice and, you know, but there's some holes in that, or sometimes people use an egg, you got the white, you got the yolk, you got the shell, you know, and and so, but it's a little hard to kind of really understand. But one of the things that's been helpful to me in understanding what exactly the Trinity is, is is a term that the Greek fathers used long ago. And that term is perichoresis. You know what perichoresis means. It's easy if you split it up. So the first word, first part of it is peri, where we get our word perimeter. And so what does peri probably mean? Around, exactly, right? And then we have, and then we have choresis, right? And choresis is where we get our word choreography. So what is that, what what does choresis probably mean? Dance, right? See, look, you guys are good. So it means to dance 
around. And what the Greek fathers were trying to point out is that perichoresis, a trinity, perhaps it is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, distinct in one sense, and yet also kind of working together as one, dancing around together as one. So what does that mean? Well, let me tell you a quick story. Several years ago, uh, as I've told you before, I was, living in, uh, I was living in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, as a part of that kind of that, that part of my life, um, uh, over, I'd been there a few months and I finally, I met some friends, right? Now they ended up being mostly kind of expats, right? These were people from, uh, primarily from America and Canada and then one Norwegian. I think it's, it's always good to throw a Norwegian into the mix if you can. And so, so there we were and it was a Friday night and we were kind of, you know, we were just kind of hanging out and uh, there at at the campus of the University of Edinburgh. And as we were kind of doing that, all of a sudden we, uh, we, we began to hear some music, right? We were walking around the quad and we heard some music. And, and so we decided we wanted to go here. Now, I didn't really want to go see what it was. I love the music. It was Celtic music, but I'm not really one who likes to barge into things, right? But some people are different. It was probably the Canadians. And so, uh, no offense. And so, um, so they, they led the way in, right? But so I went in, but I, you know, it was very uncomfortable uh, for me, but I loved hearing the music. And so what I did is that I decided to kind of go over into, uh, into the corner, right? I went over into the shadows of the room while some of the others were out there kind of seeing what was going on. And what we had stumbled upon was a Kaylee. You want to know what a Kaylee is? The Kaylee, this is a lot of questions today with no answers. The Kaylee today, it is, it is a, it's like a dance, basically. It is a Celtic dance, right? It's almost like a folk square dance, if you will, for the Celts. And so we were there and we were watching this Kaylee, right? And it was fascinating. I mean, sometimes they were in a square. Sometimes they were in a triangle. Sometimes they were in a circle. Sometimes they were in parallel lines and the music was going, right? You had a fiddle. You had, you had some, some bagpipes, of course. Uh, you had a drum. It was amazing. And what I noticed as I was like listening to this Kaylee and watching this Kaylee is that sometimes I would just stare at one person and I would look at him or her and it was just great to see kind of, they knew what they were doing, right? And I'm not going to try to do this, but, but I, I thought about it and I said, no, this would not end well. So um, big softball game today. So, but they, they would... Um, but they would, they would move their legs, right, all in perfect rhythm, right? And, and you could see that person, and they knew exactly what to do, and their, their arms would go this way or go that way, and their legs would go this way or then that way, and they were moving perfectly, and they knew when to weave in and out of the person that was next to them. It was, it was remarkable, right? And, uh, but then after a while, I kind, of, I, I kind of stepped back a little bit, uh, and I started to kind of look a little bit more at, at the overall scheme, and that was even more beautiful because the way that they worked, right, even though I knew that it was probably 30 or 40 individuals, they kept working. It, it was like they were one, right? I can't describe it all that well, but it's, it's a little bit like being on the beach, right? And you, you kind of stand off and you watch the waves come in and you see the beauty of the waves and you know that the waves are made up of lots of individual drops of water, but you don't actually see that because you're mesmerized, of course, by just the waves and the beauty of them coming in and out. And that's exactly what this dance was like. All of these individuals, right? But yet working together in this kind of beautiful sense of this dance, right? And it was almost indistinguishable. And I was mesmerized as I saw these individuals yet working together as one. And that is the perichoresis that the Greek fathers were talking about when it came to the Trinity. Three individual, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet working in community together almost as a dance. 
The significance of this, it seems to me, is to think about that if this was what Jesus had been experiencing, this community together, and then he is born on earth and he begins to grow up and what he is used to is this communal dance, if you will, what do you think Jesus was looking for as he got older? Community, dance partners, a.k.a. disciples. It was a part of who he was from the very beginning of time. And this is why the Trinity is important. From the very beginning of time, the Trinity was a community of dancers together, if you will. And so when Jesus comes, right, Leslie Newbigin, a missionary to India, said this. It's interesting that Jesus didn't write a book. He formed a community. And while the book, the Bible, is clearly important, it is important because it points to the community of the triune God. And so if we believe that we have been made in the image of God, then what does that mean we are as a new creation? It means that we are a community of dancers together. It's not just nice. It's not just cute. It is who We are. It's why the notion of a lone ranger Christian, I have a feeling, is somewhat oxymoronic to God. Because if God is a community of dancers together, then that is, again, by our very nature, who we are. But something else kind of fascinating happened as this kind of group of Kaylee dancers were going together. As I told you, as I was sitting there and watching and kind of being mesmerized by that, what I noticed, of course, is this is what happens, right? My foot started tapping there, right? Dark in the shadows. And and the more they did it, the more there was something about it that even though I didn't want to get up there, there was something about it that was magnetic, that you couldn't help but watch these individuals and yet acting as one. There was something that, that made you want to be a part of it. And they began to do this thing. It was almost like a star, if you will, where they would come together and then they would go out like points of a star. And then they would come together and they would go out. And as they came out, what they did is they began to go like this. And then they would go back and then they would go to a different point and they would do this. And what they were doing was they were inviting someone to join. And at some point after watching it and after hearing the music and after realizing that this was something beautiful that I wanted to be a part of, at some point I finally said, okay, and I grabbed the hand and it didn't work perfectly at first. There were times when they were going right and I was going left and they were going left and I was going right. There were toes that were stepped on. There was anger probably. But eventually, as I began, as we began to hear the music, right? Did you notice what the choir sang? The song of Christ. As they began to hear, as I began to hear that music, that mission, all of a sudden, then we began to act as one. My point is this, a body, a community who realizes who they are by their very essence as a dancing community is one that begins to attract the world out there. 2 Corinthians 4 says that we are the embodiment of Jesus. Newbigin says that we are the hermeneutic of the gospel, which is just a fancy way of saying, by and large, people know Jesus through a community of Christ. 
And I am here to tell you that if we are dancing as one together because of who we are as the image of the triune God, then people who are out there will not be able to help but begin to be drawn in. It is the reason why Paul keeps talking about relationship and community again and again and again. In all of his letters, it is essential. So my hope and my prayer, sisters and brothers in Christ, is that you understand that what is going on here is not just tertiary. It is not simply some part. It is who we are as a community of the triune God. And the more that we can be a people who hear that music and who are not distracted by the many things that will come on that will impede us, the people stepping on our toes, the people getting in the way, the people who are going right when they wish that they, when we wish that they would go left, the more that we continue to hear that, the more the watching world will be drawn to something that is more beautiful than they can experience on their own. My hope and my prayer on this Trinity Sunday is that we will understand just how precious it is, how beautiful of a thing it is to know that we can dance together. Not because it's fun, though it is. Not because it's convenient. Not because it helps us at times. But because it simply is who we are. May it be so. Amen.